When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Welcome to the concluding part of this two-part episode looking at an appalling true crime case from 2001 that is threaded with gothic horror. In the last episode, we followed the life of a 17-year-old Welsh teenager called Matthew Hardman, who had become convinced that the sleepy village in which he lived was infested with vampires. Desperate to become one himself, he befriended a German exchange student called Anna, who he insisted was one of the undead. And in a dramatic attack, he pleaded for her to bite his throat, thrusting his neck against her mouth. Her refusal would later lead him to commit a truly horrific act of ritualistic murder, all in the quest to become one of the undead. But what exactly did he do? How was he caught? And more to the point... Why did Matthew Hardman wish to become vampiric? Well, I'm Peter Laws, and we'll learn all of that and more in tonight's episode of Frightful and the Welsh Vampire Murder. We left the last episode with Matthew Hardman ranting in the street, desperate for someone, anyone, to bite him. When the police were called, he even begged them to sink their fangs into his throat. They denied they were vampires, and so he punched himself in the face, and as the blood gushed out, he knew that the vampires of the town would be unable to resist leaping on him and turning him into one of them. But despite the flowing blood, the officers did not bite him. Nobody did. They managed to grab him, and finally took him into custody. And at the police station... Matthew's delirious mental state gradually started to subside. He eventually came to his senses and found himself apologizing to the police. He insisted that his wild demands to have his neck bitten was just the result of being intoxicated with marijuana, which he used to use now and then. Now, given the hideous crime that was to come with the sick murder of Mabel Lasham, We might be surprised to find that the police accepted this and didn't charge Matthew with anything. But then some people do have psychotic episodes when under the influence of drugs, and the police probably never dreamed that he would go on to murder. And so worryingly, he was released without charge. But this incident with the police did not seem to have put an end to Matthew's quest. He still wanted to become one of the undead. A week went by before Matthew found Anna again. And when he did, he apologized to her profusely. And somehow the apology worked like it had with the police. Anna accepted it. And in the weeks ahead, she and Matthew had more conversations about dark Gothic culture. And of course, vampires in particular. With Matthew sharing that elderly people would make 
perfect victims for vampires. At one point, Anna even told him that if he really wanted to become a vampire, he couldn't just be bitten by one. He'd need to drink some blood himself. A deadly plan of action was starting to formulate in Matthew's mind. He would have to drink blood to achieve his dream of becoming an immortal vampire, and he knew exactly whose blood it would be. The cantankerous elderly lady from up the road who always gave him a hard time when he delivered her newspaper, Old Mabel Latham. He did it at night, on Saturday, November the 25th, 2001. Dressed in black and wearing latex gloves, Matthew Hardman took a six-inch knife from his kitchen. Then he headed to Mabel Latham's home. He was able to creep around to the back of her house, and with a piece of tile from the patio, he smashed the panel of the window in. You might think he'd have been paranoid about making a noise to disturb her, but remember, he knew full well that she was quite deaf... In fact, he could hear her television playing at full volume from inside. She was in there, keeping up with the politics she was so fascinated with. And there would have been a lot of talk on the news at this time because the devastating world-changing events of 9-11 had only happened just one month before. So he was confident that the smashing window would not alert the old lady, and he was right. He climbed through the broken glass, wincing as he cut himself on a shard, but he kept on going and made his way inside, passing the teddy bears that she kept in the rooms and following the sound of that booming television with its volume on maximum. It was so loud that she didn't even hear him creeping around to her armchair as she watched the news. But then, deaf or not, she knew he was there because he stepped up to her, lifted the knife and began his attack. He unleashed a horrendous flurry of blows, bringing the blade down on her over and over again. Even at the age of 90, she was able to put up a fight, but despite her struggle, it was not enough. Matthew Hardman stabbed her a total of 22 times, two of which went through her heart. And not to be too weird about it, but just try something right now. Try enacting an angry stabbing motion with your hand 22 times. You will see just how gratuitous that number is. The TV had been blaring at top volume. But at some point, Matthew must have found it to be annoying or a distraction because when she was found the next day, the TV was still running, but the sound was on mute. And so perhaps in the dreadful silence... Matthew had time to think. This explosion of violence did not make Matthew come to his senses. It did not flood him with guilt. Far from it. Once he knew Mabel Lation was dead, he raced into her kitchen and frantically looked for the items he needed to begin the ritual. He brought a silver platter and a saucepan, plus some sheets of newspaper. His primary aim was to drink the old lady's blood. So in the quiet, he lifted her feet and placed them on a footstool, tugging her slippers off. He then peeled her stockings down so that her calves were exposed and hanging, and he placed the saucepan just under her legs. He took his kitchen knife and carefully started to slice the muscle under her knees. As the blood started pouring and draining, 
into the saucepan. He got to work on the next phase of the ceremony. He leaned over her in her armchair, and with the knife he started to hack an entrance into her chest, cutting through the skin, then through the muscle, then through the ribs themselves, sawing. This procedure would have taken considerable strength, time, and determination, but he had to do it for what he had planned. He hacked through enough ribs for him to reach in and crack a space open, just enough to reach in with his hand and tear out her heart. He wrapped it in the newspaper, perhaps the very same paper he had delivered himself to her, and he placed it on the silver tray. And then he started setting out the other elements to help complete this bizarre ritual. He lit a candle and put it on the mantelpiece. Then he lit another one near the body. Next, he went to her fireplace and grabbed two silver pokers from it. He placed these in a cross formation on the floor, which seems odd since the sign of the cross is supposed to repel vampires, and it would lead police to later speculate whether he was simply confused and delirious at this point, or that he was inept and didn't understand how vampires worked, or perhaps he was deliberately trying to make this look like a satanic ritual and not something linked to vampires, since he knew that he had already been caught by the police for a vampire-related incident. Whatever the case, with all the elements in place, he pulled out a sheet of paper that was stuffed in his pocket, and he started to read out a pre-written incantation over the grisly scene. And once he'd read it, he dropped to his knees beside Mabel Lation's body, and he reached for the most important element of this entire ceremony. With the saucepan now heavy with the old woman's blood, he grabbed the saucepan handle, and he carefully tugged it out from under her, and then he lifted the pan toward his face. And all those stories and films and art pieces and discussions about vampires must have flooded into his mind like one of the lines from Bram Stoker's Dracula which says the blood is the life and so he opened his mouth pressed the rim of the saucepan to his lips and he tilted it and allowed her still warm blood to pour into his mouth and down his throat as he gulped it down once he had drunk his fill he waited to feel himself change into a vampire now we might think that after this insane ritual, he would be filled with frustration and he would be upset because he wouldn't feel any different. He would realize that all of this had been for nothing. But that's not what happened. I've read that Matthew was supposedly convinced at this point that now he had slaughtered Mabel and drunk her blood, that he really was a full vampire at last. And so he left excited to begin his new life as one of the undead and to finally be an accepted member of the local community. The body of Mabel Lation was discovered the next day, as we've heard. And as the police swooped in to investigate, they were appalled. They had never seen anything like it, and it was thought that whoever had committed this crime must be some sort of butcher or surgeon. Such was the skill and strength required to cut apart and open the ribcage. But whoever it was, they had left physical evidence at the scene. For example, the bloody footprint by the broken patio window. The print design of it was clearly recognisable as coming from a pair of Levi's shoes. 
and they found other vital clues too, including a mixture of blood at the scene. The killer had cut himself or herself during the crime, probably while breaking in. Another chilling element was discovered in the lounge when forensic experts examined the saucepan. They found a lip print around the rim. They knew that someone had drunk from it. Despite this list of evidence, it was not enough to pinpoint any particular individual. So the police started a widespread inquiry, going from house to house, questioning locals about what they might have seen. The sweep of houses was so extensive that only two days after the murder, police knocked on the door of Matthew Hardman himself, where he was living with his mother. But he denied knowing Mabel, and he claimed he had an alibi. He said he was with that exchange student, David Lamb. The police accepted this and moved on. They even contacted Satanists and practitioners of the occult for advice on the ritualistic nature of the murder. And along with this, the popular TV show Crime Watch became part of the investigation. It's a show that shares details of unsolved crimes. And it asks the public to phone in with any information that they might have. The show was contacted by several people about the vampire murder. But it was one call in particular that was to prove the breakthrough. It was Anna, the German exchange student, that Matthew had begged to bite him. She had heard about the crime. It was impossible not to. And so she got in touch with the police, telling them not only what he did to her in the room that day, but she also told them that Matthew had sometimes talked about how the elderly were ideal targets for the vampire community to feed on. Armed with this new information, the police returned to Matthew Hardman's doorstep and asked him about the biting incident with Anna. But he just dismissed this as a silly thing he did while stoned and that he wasn't particularly into vampires anyway. He tried to play it cool with them, and even when the police asked to search his home, he just said, fine, go for it. But when they did, it was clear that his interest in vampires was hardly insignificant. They found stacks of books and magazines about the topic, but even more significant, a pair of Levi trainers that he had cleaned, but the prints matched the blood footprint. Exactly. It was clear that they had discovered the person who had murdered Mabel Laysham in her home, and along with some DNA evidence, they were able to arrest Matthew Hardman on the 8th of January 2002. Matthew's mother, Julie, was present at the time of that arrest, and obviously she was in shock. But as he was taken from his home by police officers, Matthew turned to her and said, Don't worry, it's all right, Mama, I didn't do anything. During the interrogation and subsequent trial at Mould Crown Court, Matthew calmly denied that he had anything to do with this murder. His mother was present every day of the trial, and I just can't imagine what it must have been like for her. Because despite him assuring her and the court that he had done nothing wrong, the evidence presented in court became overwhelming. As well as DNA matches and bloody footprints, they actually found the latex gloves that he'd worn that night. And the court also heard from Anna, the German exchange student. She told them about the time that Matthew had tried to get her to bite him, but also she added that there was a moment during that incident when he seemed to lose touch with reality and that his facial expression became frightening and diabolical. By the end of the trial, the result was no shock. Matthew Hardman was found guilty, and the judge, Mr. Justice Richards, challenged him on his complete lack of remorse. 
and he said this during the verdict. I am drawn to the conclusion that vampirism had become a near obsession with you. You really did believe that this myth may be true and that you would achieve immortality by the drinking of another person's blood. One might hope for a psychological explanation for your behaviour, but none is available. You hoped for immortality. All you achieved was to brutally end another person's life and to bring a life sentence upon yourself. So he was sentenced to life imprisonment and as he was led away from the court, Matthew Hardman crumbled into tears. This young man who in his twisted way believed he was joining a new community was now heading to prison. And witnesses saw his mother look at him and mouth the words, I love you. You might think that the court would have deemed Matthew Hardman as insane his actions were after all off the scale, but as you've heard, the judge did not decide that was the case, or at least he couldn't name a psychological category that he could be filed under. Instead, it was decided that he was in full control of his faculties at the time of the killing. Matthew himself just kept denying that he was the killer, even though it was obvious he was. And he still denies that he committed the crime, even to this day. For some, that denial is simply the lies of a cold and evil monster. Though it might not be as black and white as that. Perhaps Matthew was so horrified by the actions that he did that he has somehow shut his mind off from the memory of it, that it is psychologically preferable for him to deny it, that he has somehow convinced himself that it wasn't him, even though it clearly was. Whatever the case, Matthew Hardman was sent to prison where he still sits today, and I wonder, does he still think the prison officers or the other inmates might be vampires? Does he still believe he is a vampire deep down on account of drinking Mabel Lasham's blood that night? You know, in my research for this episode, I was able to dig up an interview with a psychiatric nurse from 2017 called Chris Keneally. He treated Matthew in prison and he admitted to the press that when Matthew arrived at the prison, he had a huge grin on his face. Curious about this grinning arrival, Keneally asked... Matthew how he felt and Matthew said this is the most exciting thing that has ever happened to me later during therapy sessions with Keneally Matthew would keep on denying the murder and he would also show no emotion other than the smiling of that arrival that day but one day Keneally asked him if Matthew was guilty and Keneally said he believed he really was guilty In response, Matthew curled up into the fetal position and started to cry. Keneally said that despite Matthew's denial, he was convinced that this teenager knew and knows he is guilty. And yet in all of the time of interview, he has never offered any words of concern or sympathy for what Mabel Lasham had gone through. The case of Matthew Hardman is a shocking one. In fact, it was so intense that the five team leaders who represented the 60 officers that worked this case were given commendations at a ceremony in 2003. This was to acknowledge the sheer complexity and emotional toll of what Matthew Hardman had done, not only to Mabel Lasham, but to the officers who had to work her distressing and extremely unique case. But even though I say unique... That's not to say that vampire murders are just a one-off in this one case. 
Thankfully, they're rare, but they do happen. In fact, in Scotland, England, a similar scenario played out just one year after the murder of Mabel Latham. A 22-year-old man called Alan Menzies became so obsessed with the 2001 vampire movie Queen of the Damned that he claimed that one of the lead characters in the film started speaking to him. Akasha was the female vampire in the film, and the actress who played her um, was the talented R&B hip-hop artist Alea, and she was tragically killed in a plane crash not long before the film was released. But Menzies said that she would visit his home and promise him that if he killed his friend Thomas McKendrick, he would become an immortal vampire like her. And on the 11th of December 2002, he attacked Thomas, stabbed him, drank his blood, and even ate part of his head. Menzies told the court, At the end of the day, I knew I would have to murder somebody anyway. It was the only way you could do it. If you don't murder somebody, you couldn't become a vampire. In 2005... A woman called Diana Semenure lured little children from the street into her home in Odessa, where she drank their blood. And when she had finished with them, she dumped their little bodies back in the street. I could go on, including more famous vampire murder cases, but the bottom line is this. For some people, the vampire identity is more than just a fictional trope. In fact, in my non-fiction book, The Frighteners, I interview people who believe they are vampires who actually drink one another's blood. But regardless of all the dramatic gothic horror stuff, at the heart of the Matthew Hardman case is a seriously troubled young man who was lonely and isolated and angry. And yes, he was struggling with a sense of loss when his beloved father died. But key to this all is this sense of identity. Ironically, Mabel Latham was a woman who had lost someone close to her, too, her husband, but she had managed to make a life for herself for the 50 years after it. And this might sound idealistic, but perhaps, perhaps if they had ever sat down together, Mabel and Matthew, and shared their stories, they might have discovered some connection. Indeed, remember how Matthew went to study art at college? Well, Matthew and Mabel would have had no idea that they shared a common interest in art. Matthew was fascinated by it, and Mabel happened to love art too. She was quite an accomplished landscape artist. But neither of them knew of their common losses or skills. Instead, they were both one-dimensional characters in each other's story. Their relationship never deepened beyond being the grumpy old lady and the moody paperboy. That's often at the heart of many conflicts and disagreements when one person does not see the other as anything more than an annoyance or an obstacle rather than taking the time to get to know them. And yet, clearly, the issue here is deeper. Matthew Hardman didn't even know himself. That's the core of it. He was trying to figure out who he was, and it makes me think of the art he loved. I mentioned just in passing earlier that he was a huge fan of the artist Frida Kahlo. Even if you do not know her name or her art, I bet you'll recognize her face with the distinctive thick eyebrows. Her image has become as famous as the art itself, and you'll find her in posters and socks and lunch bags and tennis shoes. Frida Kahlo is famous for taking material culture and art and using it to construct her own identity. She was able to create a version of herself that was even bigger than the reality, and it worked. It made her an icon. 
And here we have Matthew Hardman, a young man in Wales struggling with a sense of his identity with fellow school kids mocking him, perhaps making him feel like a nobody and him realizing he needed to constrict an identity for himself to make himself somebody or something. I bet that Matthew would have been familiar with Carlo's 1938 painting, Girl with Death Mask, which depicts a little child, probably Carlo herself, wearing a pink little dress and holding a yellow flower, yet she is hiding her face behind a skeleton mask, a death mask with clenched teeth. It's blank. And next to her, on the floor, sits another mask, that of a fierce and powerful jaguar monster, which was said to increase in physical and supernatural strength. Its teeth are bared, its lips are wet with blood, its tongue is hanging, and its blank eyes are staring. This idea of a faceless, blank child finally becoming some sort of supernatural creature clearly resonated with Matthew. Like Carlo, he, too, would start to formulate his identity by taking and owning the material around him. And what did he find? What really resonated with him? The strong and enigmatic vampires of fiction and film, who not only had power and respect, but had also developed some sort of community around him. And these vampires were immortal. If Matthew's dad, who he loved so deeply, had been a vampire, he'd still be around. Aspen wouldn't have killed him. And over time, Matthew Hardman would see a blank death mask in the mirror when he saw himself, his own identity, nothing special. And so instead, he would reach down and lift up the mask of the powerful vampire instead, and he would become something new. And all it took was the brutal and planned death of someone he had arrogantly and cruelly assumed was expendable and not needed. A woman he saw as little more than a meal ticket, a literal meal ticket to immortality. And the irony is, of course, in the words of the judge, that all he achieved was the loss of her life, and in many ways, the loss of his. I'm Peter Laws, and you've been listening to The Welsh Vampire Killer on Frightful. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today.